News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This morning, we're going to talk about your work arrangements. Now, since the pandemic began, there's been a real change in how we work in the workplace. More and more companies have embraced, you know, working from home or maybe some kind of hybrid model. So you might have the virtual meetings. You might not, you know, very often see the colleagues that you actually work with. But is all of that worth it for the company? Allowing employees to work from home, is there really a cost savings? Well, these are just some of the things that get studied by our next guest, Matthias Spitzmuller, who's a professor of organizational behavior at Queen University's Smith School of Business. Matthias, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Good morning, Shimi. Good morning. This must be a fascinating time to do what you do because there probably feels like there's so many changes, like a structural shift going on. Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, there are lots of opportunities to comment on what's happening in the workplace right now, because as you say, there's so much interest in how the pandemic is changing the future of work. And we are also seeing um, drastic changes, the scope of which we haven't seen in decades, I would say. So what are companies doing? Like, It must be difficult for a company to decide as well, right? Because if you allow everybody to work from home, how do you create that kind of corporate feeling or that company feeling? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly at the, the core of the problem. So employees have discovered a strong need to be more flexible in their work arrangements and also strong preferences for hybrid work arrangements. So in that sense, it's almost become a necessity for organizations to also offer such arrangements if they don't want to lose talent. But at the same time, and there's also some, some research that speaks to that, and we've seen similar results in a poll that we ran earlier this week, the organizational culture suffers or can suffer under that, such that people don't feel as connected to their peers, not as connected to the, the mission, the, the strategy of the organization. And I know that right now also what's really popular is something called hot desking. I was reading about this too, where you don't really have a desk when you do go into work. If you go once or twice a week, you have to book a desk. Uh, how does that go over with organizations? Yeah, I think that's a trend that's already started long before the pandemic. Um, 15 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, professional service firms around the world were the first ones to adopt that. They did this because they realized that most of their consultants they were working on client sites and the, the offices were oftentimes empty. So it was just a huge waste of real estate and they felt, okay, let's uh, do something more more useful. Let's uh, restrict our office space and let's use to a more flexible arrangement. So the downside of this is even though organizations proclaim that this would make the organization more agile, more flexible, it would stimulate communication among employees that would usually not talk that much, that hasn't really happened. There's research that finds that there's actually less communication among employees in a system where you've got um, hot desking. And the reason is, if you're always at different places, you've always got some background noise behind you. If you're in a huge public space, you are much less inclined to entertain casual conversations with colleagues. So essentially, it comes down to real estate savings, but the benefits for organizational culture or for the agility of the organization for communication have not really materialized. 
Right. Then, so is it up to the employees at this point? Because some of them might like it, right? Because it gives them more freedom. Yeah, I think um, to some extent it's up to the employees, but I think organizations have to think about new and innovative ways for how they can still keep the culture alive and for how they can still connect employees to each other. And so I think planning social events, um, even if they occur virtually, thinking about opportunities to connect those employees in the organization that would sometimes just bump into each other at the water cooler. So thinking about how you can replace those types of conversations and contacts, that's really important. And that's something that organizations should not leave to chance. You know, Matthias, this is so interesting because I wonder, is it worth it if there's a a slight cost savings for a company to implement this kind of hot desking procedure. Is it worth it though? Because right now it's so hard to attract talent and employees. And isn't it easier to do that if an employee thinks this is a fun and great place to work? Right. Um, I think it depends on the organization. It also depends on the, on the industry. To some extent, I would say that it is indeed a necessity. If only 20 or 30% of your offices are used, that's indeed a waste of, of real estate. It's also a waste of, um, of energy. So I can understand organizations when they're, when they're moving towards such practices. But I'd also recommend that why don't you offer employees the opportunity to book private places when they need time for deep thinking, for conceptual work, because that is not done well when you're surrounded by lots of other employees in a public space. Is this something, though, that you think we're going to see more of in the workplace if, if there is a return to you know, getting people back into the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is going to become more and more common. What started in professional service firms a couple of decades ago is increasingly becoming the norm. And I think we're also going to see this in many other organizations and employers across Canada. So interesting. Matthias, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the discussion. That's Matthias Spitzmuller, who's a professor of organizational behavior at Queen's University's Smith School of Business, talking about, well, your desk, really, in the workplace. How do you feel about it? Do you like it? Do you have personal stuff there? Or do you feel like, eh, I could take it or leave it. I could work anywhere. I, I could do with a temporary desk. Some people feel very connected to having a regular workplace. How would you feel about hot desking in your workplace? Simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-289. The BC Centre for Disease Control has released much-anticipated guidelines for how to deal with COVID-19 in childcare spaces, if you're a vaccinated individual, an unvaccinated individual. And we're talking about nine pages of information. It was released last night. It set standards for childcare operators in particular. And you know what? We need some help, I think, breaking all of this down. So joining us is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning. All right. So what do you make of this new guidance? Well, it's based on the rapidly evolving science that is trying to make us function as a society and be safe in doing so. So as new information develops, and it mandates a change in our behaviors. And in this case, it's, I think, a positive change. It really leads to, uh, to these kinds of, of documents, perhaps a bit too long, perhaps a bit too complicated. But I think that it is based on science and it is going to be very helpful to us going forward. And I think that's sort of the background 
uh, against mm-hmm. which we need to measure it. I think you're right when you say perhaps a little bit too complicated, right, for people to absorb. But what what is what are your big takeaways from it? So first, if you're sick, stay home. So I think if a child is feeling unwell, they should not uh, be uh, participating in any kind of uh, daycare or joint uh, uh, activities of, of any kind. Now, in that situation, they are to stay home. And whether or not they are vaccinated within the subsequent five days, after five days, as long as the last day or two they have been well, they can then reintegrate the environment, which obviously remains COVID-friendly. So the spacing, the ventilation, the use of masks, the hand washing, all of that needs to remain in place. And obviously, the institution needs to be well-staffed according to guidelines, so if there are not enough staff to take care of the children on a given day, unfortunately, the children need to stay home. And the difference here is between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, we're now thinking that the period of time that there's a need for isolation is the same. They become non-contagious at about the same rate, just that the unvaccinated will get sicker more frequently. And obviously, anyone under five is unvaccinated because the vaccine isn't available to them yet. So I think that summarizes it practically. And I think people need to to, to think about this and understand that this is the new science. It mm-hmm. makes sense. We're very confident about this. Okay, so if you've had, or you're having COVID, or you've got Omicron right now, how long after your symptoms go away, can you go back out and resume your regular life? A minimum of five days after your symptoms first develop with the last 24 to 36 hours being symptom-free. Okay, so that makes sense. And that's vaccinated or unvaccinated? Yes, and again, the difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated is the unvaccinated will just get sicker more often, but we now believe that they clear the infection at probably the same rate, so longer isolation for them is no longer indicated. Right. And one of the other big ones, Dr. Conway, was if you come into contact or have regular contact with somebody who tests positive, that also changes now. Yes, that does not mandate isolation, does not mandate any change in your behavior as long as you remain well. Obviously, if you get into contact with too many people who have COVID at some point, the piper will be paid, so to speak, and you will get sick. So again, try not to do that too often, or if you do so, do it under safe circumstances. But yes, being well after a contact with someone with COVID, you do not isolate. Okay, so what does this tell us about what we've learned about Omicron? It tells us about contagion, and it tells us about the pace of the disease, of the clinical disease in people. And that is basically what we're trying to do with any of these measures is to reduce the risk of transmission, to reduce the risk of onward transmission. And think of this as the reproductive rate of the epidemic to dust off an old term. For each person who's infected, we want one or less person to be subsequently infected. So we don't want people in contact at a time that they're at risk. But on the flip side, once they're safe, it's okay for them to go back into COVID world with all of the safe behaviors that have served as well. Right. So it does also sound like we're applying some common sense here too about when it comes to dealing with people who have this. Absolutely. And the more we get into this now, almost two years, the more we're confident about the facts 
and the numbers. If you'll recall at the beginning, we were all isolating for 14 days and isolating on our own with the food slipped under the door and all this kind of stuff. So now we understand what is safe to do and what is not safe to do. So I think the key feature here is if you're sick, stay home, and it's about a five-day period where you will be uh, sort of apart from others while the infection takes its course. Right. But if you have a child in a childcare or daycare setting, just don't take any chances, any kind of symptoms, anything like that. Stay home. Yeah, I think we've all had this this habit is, you know, you have to, it's just a little cold. It's just a little sniffle. So no, don't do that. I think uh, if we get onward spread of the infection, we're not doing anyone any good. So take advantage of the new sort of more permissive rules. But as, as, as it has been throughout the course, let's not go beyond what the rules say. Let's not try and bend them. That's when we get into trouble. Let's not get too relaxed. Uh, Dr. Conway, thank you for explaining that to us. A pleasure. Well, it was a rare news conference yesterday from U.S. President Joe Biden, but boy, it was a long one, probably because there were so many topics to cover, especially in light of low approval ratings right now. For more on all of this, we're joined by our global Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. How long was that press conference? Just under two hours. And in that uh, kind of one hour, 51 minute time frame, the president called on 24 different reporters. And this was an important moment, A, because it marked the end of the first year of the Biden administration. But two, you're right, it was rare. This was only the second solo full court press conference that President Biden has held since he took office, which is the lowest number of any president in modern history. Wow. And so many topics to cover. What would you say were the big ones? I know Ukraine definitely was focused on. Yeah, absolutely. Look, foreign policy is a big uh, kind of crisis in the White House right now. And that is only being exacerbated by some off the cuff comments made by President Biden regarding uh, a style or kind of severity of Russian incursion. But it's also worth pointing out that while foreign policy is problematic, domestic policy is just as problematic. Uh, At numerous points during this press conference, the president uh, acknowledged that he was shocked that Republicans would be standing in the way of his domestic agenda, while at the same time failing to acknowledge his own party is also standing in the way of his agenda. And really what it does is it signals that the president is still kind of locked in his decades that he spent as a legislator in the Senate and has not really grasped the responsibilities of what it's like to be the leader in the White House. And so what did you find most interesting out of all the things that were said yesterday? Well, I mean, look, we finally got some clarity on what the president is trying to do, at least domestically, when it comes to some of that legislation that has struggled uh, to pass, namely his Build Back Better plan, which includes things like universal child care uh, and money to deal with climate. We've now found out that that may be broken up into smaller things to try and get uh, little bits and pieces passed, likely before the end of the year, because there's a good chance Republicans uh, are going to g- uh, gain some control. But really, when the focus switched back to foreign policy, uh, we really saw kind of the the this spin and cycle of kind of disastrousness that is uh, encompassing the White House right now with the president's off-the-cuff comments that have really sparked concern across NATO, sparking concern in Ukraine, uh, potentially opening a door for Russia and putting the White House in cleanup mode to say, whoa, 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 the president really actually meant this when he was talking. Yeah, because he actually acknowledged, you know, that, oh, a little bit of the, a little bit of Ukraine might go and uh, almost like they were OK with a little bit. 
Yeah, and look, that's what Ukraine is saying right now, that it potentially opened a door for Russia to invade inside uh, their country. Uh, when the president said, well, look, if it's something minor, you know, that makes us have to do something where we can talk or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then the White House came out to say, well, no, what the president meant was any invasion or incursion into uh, Ukraine is going to lead to a swift response. But at the end of the day, incursion, invasion, it's all shades of meaning. Uh, and there is a fear that one nation entering a sovereign nation Nation, when they aren't welcomed, uh, is going to be problematic. And the White House really needs to figure out whether or not it's going to aggressively push back on Russia or whether it's going to wait for Russia to make a move and then respond. And that's also something Ukraine doesn't want to see. Yeah, it was. It, I guess it was strange to hear him almost acknowledge that he felt like this is an, an inevitability, that it's going to happen. Yeah, and look, not only has the White House, via the president, saying that, you know, quote-unquote, off the record, this is sort of an imminent, uh, you know, thing that's going to happen, we're also hearing that from the foreign diplomats that are in Ukraine right now and that we're meeting with Russian officials, uh, trying to kind of uh, tamper down the those flames that are, uh, that are kind of burning wildly right now by saying, look, there is a serious possibility here. There are so many hundreds of thousands of troops that have now lined up along the border between Russia and Ukraine that something is going to happen here. It really does have uh, the NATO allies on edge that there potentially is going to be some kind of aggressive move that's going to require a response. Right. It all is simply waiting to see uh, what Vladimir Putin does because the ball really is in his court. So, Reggie, obviously the press conference was an attempt to answer all these questions that had been built up because there hadn't been a press conference in a long time. But did it just leave more questions at this point? Well, of course, it left more questions uh, only because the president, again, is still trying to figure out how to navigate uh, a Washington that is not the same as the Washington that he dealt with when he was vice president or uh, a senator. It's far more divided. And the fact that his own party is standing in the way of his uh, plans to try and bring this country back together, uh, that is a question that has still yet to be answered. He has two moderate senator, uh, senators rather, in his party uh, that just stood in the way of changes, archaic changes, uh, to uh, the Senate that is essentially going to kill voting rights uh, bill and legislation in this country. That was a big thing that the president uh, campaigned on last uh, uh, before 2020. Uh, and now that that is dead, he now has to try to figure out how to not only mend his party, but also bring a country back together that's being further politically divided. Those answers weren't given last night. Mm, all right, Reggie, thank you so much. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our global Washington correspondent. You undoubtedly heard the news this week about our inflation rate. Statistics Canada says the annual pace of inflation climbed to a 30-year high in the month of December. Oh boy, that was well ahead of what we thought we were going to be getting in 2021. So it's the highest point since 1991. Now, driving that, higher prices year over year for food, for vehicles, for housing, essentially you name it. And they even excluded gasoline prices from calculations. And if they hadn't, well, it would have been up even more. So how did we get to this point? What got us here? And at what point do we see things start to go down again? Joining us now for more on this is Dr. Chu Nguyen, who's an economist and ESG director at RSM Canada. Dr. Nguyen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Simi. Good morning. Can you tell me about the kind of work that you do? Sure. Uh, so I am an economist and ESG director with uh, RSM Canada. And RSM is a tax audit and consulting firm who just recently opened an office in Vancouver. And we offer professional services to businesses in the real economy. Ah, okay. And so very timely right now. Are, are, were you surprised by the inflation numbers? 
Uh, I could say n- no. We were expecting inflation to stay high for a while, certainly for the first half of 2022, before uh, potentially going back down because it takes a while, even after the Bank of Canada raises rate for inflation to go down. But certainly two or three years ago, none of us uh, expected to be in this position today. Uh, no, we did not. What kind of an impact does having inflation this high, what kind of an impact does that have? I would say that this high period of inflation is having an impact on all businesses and people because it's causing rippling effects across the economy. Now, lower income households are disproportionately affected because they spend more money uh, as a portion of their income on essentials such as gas, utilities, food, and housing. And these are the components whose prices have gone up by the most. And what would it take for us to bring that back down? Or do you see a time when it goes back down? Well, inflation this high has uh, come about as a result of high inflation expectation, pent-up demand from people staying at home with not many avenues to spend their money, as well as due to supply chain struggles. And while the Bank of Canada can take steps to uh, try to bring this rate down, uh, we are not going to see the rate go back to the target of 2% until the supply chain disruptions are addressed. And that is not something that the central bank can do. Right. And that's also something like, do we even foresee that happening? That seems like it's a, a pretty far ways down the line. Supply chain disruptions is certainly a big problem right now, just uh, not within Canada, but as well as all over the world. And that is a result of worker shortages. Uh, We have a shortage of warehouse workers, truck drivers, and of uh, manufacturing closing in different places around the world because of COVID outbreaks. And uh, honestly, I don't think we will see the end of this until we find a way to uh, live in harmony with this pandemic and have healthy people because healthy people are the are people who can go to work and keep the economy running. As, as long as we have this high number of cases and hospitalizations and deaths, uh, we won't be able to unclog the supply chain, so to speak. Right. And even if we do unclog the supply chain, do we does, do the prices have to come down in order for inflation to ease? And when does that ever happen? When do prices come down? <laughs> well, pr- certainly prices don't usually go down, but they could stop going up and that would cause inflation rate uh, year over year, month over month to stabilize uh, at a lower rate over time. And that is certainly possible. Um, It's just difficult to say whether that's going to happen sooner rather than later because we still have so much uncertainty regarding the pandemic. Are we going to see a more deadly variant? Are we going to learn to find ways to be healthy and, and, you know, not have so many people hospitalized? So those are all the questions. Right. Those are a lot of questions. And so, Dr. Nguyen, do you think this is just reality for the next, what, couple of years? Uh, certainly for the next six months, I would not be, uh, I, I would not say the next couple of years yet. I think we just have to see. Uh, I've seen reports from public health officials saying that 
the pandemic might uh, move towards an endemic where we learn to manage it better and it not having such devastating effects on our society. So that's certainly something to look forward to. If that happens, this year we can see inflation start to ease. Right. That's all. That's a lot of maybe. So do you feel that in the meantime, we just have to learn to live with these issues? I think it's certainly a difficult time, uh, as we said earlier, especially for lower income households who certainly just don't have a lot of wiggle room and options to substitute from really. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, at least for the next three to six months, this might be the reality. Oh boy. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Dr. Chunagian, who is an economist and ESG director at RSM Canada, uh, talking about our inflation situation around for the next three to six months at least, but it will be here until we get those supply chain issues sorted out. And boy, does it ever have an impact on everything. I think everybody notices the price differences, don't they? Not just at the pump, but with everything else that we're buying these days too, particularly food. So we've been told that 5G is the greatest, right? The best, the fastest, and we're all waiting for it. And then all of a sudden we hear, oh no, no, 5G is a danger to airplanes. What is going on with this? How was this not all thought out before the rollout of a 5G network? Well, Canadian officials and airline leaders are weighing the impacts, the potential impacts of 5G technology on critical aircraft technology. There have been a lot of warnings about what is going on from the United States. Let's talk more about this now with Keith Mackey, who is an aviation expert. Keith, thanks for being with us. Well, hi, Sammy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. What is going on with this 5G situation? Well, this is certainly a predictable situation. Ever since they envisioned the 5G bands operating on the same frequency virtually as aircraft radar altimeters, the situation was predictable. Unfortunately, neither of the telecoms nor the aviation industry did what was necessary to solve the problem. Right. And we're talking about in the United States here, right? Well, we also have issues in Canada, but Transport Canada has done a little bit better job than the Americans have to solve the issue. Okay. So what is the difference and what have we done in Canada? Like, how are we protecting people? Well, let me, let me give you a little background okay. on it. Uh, in aviation, we use what we call radio or radar altimeters to exactly measure the distance from the aircraft to the ground. And this is important for automated landings and a a lot of things that happen in bad weather when the pilot can't see sufficiently to land through the windshield. And this not only applies to airlines, but to corporate aircraft, to charter aircraft, to helicopters, including emergency medical helicopters, It applies to night vision goggles, which are used in these helicopters and by the military. So we have a lot of affected situations here that need to be addressed before the problem is solved. On the other hand, the telecommunication companies wanted to expand their capability. To do this, they had to move to a higher frequency band that would allow faster speeds and more data to be transmitted. Unfortunately, the band that was selected and actually sold in the United States to AT&T and Verizon abuts the same frequencies as used by these radar altimeters. Consequently, the spillover, if you will, or the spurious radiations 
from the 5G service will definitely affect the uh, radar altimeters and airplanes. So now we have to find a solution. Okay, how did it get this far, though? Uh, Like, how did nobody raise these concerns early on, Keith? This was obvious five years ago when this was first proposed. And each side wanted the other side to do something. Uh, the FCC says, oh, there's no problems. You can go ahead and do it. But actually, there are a, a lot of problems. And now, when the rubber meets the road, everybody is realizing that something has to be done. The airlines have put a, a, a block up and uh, explained exactly what could happen. AT&T and Verizon have delayed the implementation of the service. The problem is that the band that AT&T and Verizon want to use is called the C-band. And as I mentioned, it's very close to the frequencies where these radar altimeters operate. Now, Transport Canada has been very wise. In Canada, Rogers, Bell, and TELUS are the ones that primarily are going to be operating in the 5G band. So they've been assigned a frequency considerably lower than is being discussed as a problem. So with this band that's called 3.7 gigahertz, it should not be much of a problem. In addition, Transport Canada has declared exclusion zones around a lot of airports where the transmitters can't be set up, no 5G transmitters in these areas, and they've required the telecoms to point to, to tilt the antenna, if you will, down, so it isn't pointing up into the sky. Okay. And they're running much lower power. Consequently, the data transfer rate will be lower, but the problem will be solved. And I don't think we're going to have the issues in Canada. Okay. First, the- if you're flying from Vancouver to the United States. Right. This is the problem, though. I don't understand how in the United States it got this far along. So what are they going to do there? Is this going to, who's going to blink in this? Well, I think they've got to do several things. The first thing that they're trying to do now is test the various aircraft installations to see which ones perhaps are shielded well enough where this won't be an issue. But as the airplanes get older, the equipment's changed. Uh, different manufacturers of radar altimeters are installed. So there is no real standard to be uh, tested easily. We know that the Boeing 777 and the Boeing 787 are having problems. And these are the newest airplanes. And uh, consequently, uh, United Arab Emirates has canceled flights to the United States with the 777 because they can't be assured that they'll be able to land if the weather's bad. So it's, it's a real mess. It doesn't inspire confidence, does it? No, it certainly doesn't. I think the situation is safe as long as no one tries to push the envelope. But can you imagine what will happen if there was an accident or even an incident that was attributed to the fact that uh, somebody operated oh, uh, at low visibility in the 5G network? Wow. Yeah, I can't even believe we got to this point, or they got to this point, I should say. Keith, thank you so much for your time. 
You're welcome, Sammy. That was fascinating. Keith Mackey is an aviation expert who just very well explained to us what this whole 5G problematic situation is, mainly in the United States. Not as much here. He talked about how Canada's done a relatively good job in in trying to mitigate these circumstances. But in the U.S., I don't even understand how it got that far along. And now they're trying to figure out what to do. So, yeah, it does make people a little bit nervous when it comes to saying you, you want to switch on 5G and it could be a problem for airplanes, but you want to keep flying airplanes? Yeah, that's a concern. Uh, so yeah, I'm sure there'll be follow-up on that for sure. You know, it's really quite a shocking video when you see it. And to see it, go to globalnews.ca and check out the story on this. Vancouver police say they are looking for a man involved in an unprovoked and random assault on a woman that happened on New Year's Eve during the day. And it was all captured on video. It's a security video. Shows a woman walking along West Georgia right in front of the Rosewood Hotel, Georgia. A man walking in the opposite direction walks by her I don't know, something happens, thinks twice, turns around, grabs her, and attacks her. And as I said, police said this was unprovoked and random, and they are investigating this. They're also investigating this incident as possibly racially motivated. We wanted to talk more about this. Trixie Ling joins us now, the founder and executive director of Flavors of Hope. It's a nonprofit social enterprise that supports newcomer refugee women. And they want to talk about having a broader conversation on stories like this. Trixie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sami. I appreciate you kind of laying out the story and inviting me to share my perspective on it. Yeah. Have you heard of stories like this happening? We know the police have said they think these are becoming more common. What have you heard? Um, Yes. Well, actually, I watched the disturbing video yesterday and it really made me really sad and angry because it reminded me of what happened to myself um, when I walked down the street and a white man spat on me. And so when the police said this is unprovoked and random and possibly racially motivated, I think that makes me really angry because for me, it's clearly one of the many violent acts against Asian. And as we know, this is just one of many anti-Asian hate incidents, especially over the last two years during the pandemic. So I would say for me, it's not just, you know, last year, but it's historical, it's systemic, it's ongoing, clearly. just happened. And so we need to recognize that this is systemic racism and oppression. And it's not just a, you know, a random act of violence. Has it gotten worse? And you mentioned during the pandemic there, do you think things have gotten worse? Because there certainly seems to be more awareness, don't you think, Trixie? Yes, there definitely is more awareness, but doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't happen. It's because it is systemic. I need to hear more conversation about what the impact of systemic racism and it has and and the hate that we experience and that it makes me really sad after this incident i've been you know reading and hearing that people are afraid to walk outside particularly as an asian woman myself and so we should not be afraid we should be proud of who we are and we need to find ways to better protect and care for people in our Asian community. Now, I know there was also concern expressed that, I mean, this happened on New Year's Eve day, so almost three weeks ago, and we didn't see the video until yesterday. Does that concern you? Yes, definitely. And the fact that, you know, this is the first time we heard of it, like I think of this woman who clearly has been traumatized, like who's caring for her? And watching this video, you know, it makes me think of, again, kind of brought me back to what happened to myself like there were bystanders clearly in this video and we didn't see anyone you know doing anything to stop that white man from attacking that asian woman or anyone to help that woman actually i saw a, a woman run into the shot and try to help her but the man had taken off 
Oh, I, I, I mean, from the glimpse of video, I think there was a woman who walked by who saw something, but I didn't see. I mean, I, we don't know what happened afterward, and I think this is the delayed in kind of releasing the story. Like, what happened? How can we rally around this woman and be able to support, you know, her and many people? And this is just something that was caught on video, right? I think about all the incidents that were not caught on video and that were not reported to the police. Like, this is something we need to continue keep talking about and not just when a video is released. Now, Trixie, when you talk about your situation and what happened to you, what kind of support did you receive? For me, it was really, you know, at first it was really hard to talk about it. Um, but I think I realized that we have to start speaking up. We cannot be afraid. And so when I started speaking up on my social media and talking to my friends, so many people reached out. And I realized that I'm not in this alone. There's been so many people in our community doing a lot of really important um, anti-racism work, and particularly with, you know, Black and Indigenous communities. This is something that's ongoing and that, you know, we have to do this in solidarity as a community, but also we have to train ourselves. So I think for me that was a big part. I took a bystander training myself and I've been talking to other people. So we need to educate and so and train right. ourselves so we have the courage to speak up and we have those skills and confidence um, to take action when these things happen and we witness it. Yeah, tell me about the bystander training. What does that involve? Because I know some people see it and they freeze, right? And they want to help and they wish they could, but they freeze. So what do you do? Yes, definitely. Well, this bystander training, I took it online. It's actually in, in, um, offered in the U.S. context, but it's, you know, there's similarity um, of, of the racism that's faced. So the training actually gives you the steps. There's a lot of, like, awareness. And then there's what do you do when you either, you know, see it and you witness it like what are the action what are the different possible action to keep yourself safe but to be able to do something and you said not freeze whether you you know go and report it whether you actually the first thing is actually look at the, the person who has been hurt look at the person who's been the victim of a hate crime and actually like make sure that person is okay and then be able to ask for help and not put yourself obviously in um in danger but be able to not just stand there or walk away. And I think that's really important. That's what happened to me. Um, someone actually saw, this older man actually saw what happened and he just walked away. And so that was really hurtful. Um, but I, I, I get it. The fear can overtake us. And so this is why it's important mm-hmm. for us to have the skills, have the training so we can be confident and, and what, have the courage to act. What was the response like from the police? Like whatever happened with your case? Well, that was really difficult, I would say, to add to that, um, because it was probably open for a whole year, I would say, almost, um, in terms of, like, they start investigating, um, but I didn't hear back for a very, very long time, and I know they were trying to look for cameras um, where my incident happened, and so there was just not that kind of communication, and I think for me that was really disappointing, and actually they closed the case. Um, after, you know, they did some work, they did the search, but they didn't even tell me the case was closed. It's not till later I found out when I was speaking at another roundtable that I was told that my case was closed because unfortunately they couldn't find a video and then they couldn't find the guy who did it. So I think there needs to be way more communication, way more um, actually focusing, centering, not just on the the perpetrator, but actually on the person who has been hurt. Yeah, what would be your message? Yeah, Trixie, what would be your message then to police in this latest case? How can they how can they treat this in a different way? Well, I think first of all, they need to also work with like people in the community who's already doing the care and protection for people. So that is one that's really important. And they also need to, as much as the time they spent on looking for this guy, and that's important. I'm not saying that's not important. They also need to like follow up and spend as much 
time and care for the person who's been hurt and believe that person, right? This person has suffered um, a really traumatic event. Um, and so be able to follow up is really important. Be able to offer any support and resources or connection and assistance is really important and not just leave this person hang. And I think that is really, really key, the follow-up and the care. Mm-hmm. And again, they're not, they don't have to do everything. They need to be able to work with people in the community already who are doing the work. That, that partnership and collaboration, I think, is really, really key to care for people. All right, Trixie, thank you so much for your time on that today. Yeah, thank you for this. We need to continue keeping up the conversation around systemic racism. All right, Trixie. doesn't happen again. All right, thank you for that. Trixie Lang is a founder and executive director of Flavors for Hope. It's a nonprofit social enterprise that supports newcomer refugee women. Talking about this unprovoked random assault of a woman on New Year's Eve. If you haven't seen the video, go to globalnews.ca. You can see it there. Uh, It was just released yesterday, even though it happened on New Year's Eve day. It's a woman walking right in front of the Rosewood Hotel, Georgia. You know, middle of the day, everything is perfectly normal until a man walking in the other direction stops, turns around and just attacks her in broad daylight. And so, yes, the police need your help in trying to identify that person. And again, check it out online, globalnews.ca. Well, what is the Skagit River Donut Hole and why is it so important and worth saving? For more on this, we're joined by George Heyman, who's BC's Minister of Environment and Climate Change Strategy. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. So what is the Skagit River Donut Hole? Well, when, when Manning Park was established in 1941, there were some outstanding uh, mineral tenure claims uh, within the area, and they formed pretty much a circle in the middle of the park and were not able to be included at the park at that time. And so it was left out. But there was always um, an understanding in government that if there was an opportunity to uh, re reclaim the claims and add that to the park that that was desirable over over decades uh, many people have pushed governance on both sides of the border to uh, finish to complete this uh, this protection in this significant area the Skagit River watershed uh, uh, begins there it's the headwaters it's an important uh, an important river for bull trout for steelhead for salmon it's got significance to indigenous nations on both sides of the border uh, I've been hearing about this for many, many years. I know people who have been advocating for the protection of this area for literally uh, almost 50 years. And I talked to a couple of them over the last uh, uh, few hours, and uh, they are very pleased that uh, that this is finally now a protected area because Imperial Metals has agreed to uh, compensation for their claims and to, and to turn them over. We yeah. now have the opportunity... Uh, to work with Indigenous nations uh, and talk about what the future of this area should be, how it should be used, and uh, how it should be protected. So what did it take to get this done then? Was there a concern that there was going to be some mining or something going on there? Well, in order to actually mine, Imperial Metals would have had to uh, would have had to get uh, permits uh, to do the mining. But under BC's Mining Act, when you have a claim, and these claims go back... Uh, in some cases, a uh, hundred years. Uh, if you have a claim, you are allowed legally to do exploration, and people were very concerned about uh, the possibility of uh, disturbance in the area. This has gone on for so long that uh, I'm sure there were uh, there were people uh, who thought it would never be protected and were planning different forms of economic activity. So in 2019, uh, as a government. Uh, we ensured uh, that uh, no consideration would be given to future 
uh, timber licensing in that area and negotiations have been ongoing with the mining company for some time uh, with the assistance of the Skagit Environmental Endowment Commission, uh, support from both sides of the border, and finally an agreement was reached. Right. So what did it take to get this done in terms of like length of time? You talked about how for decades people have wanted this done, different governments have wanted this done. So what was the holdup? Well, I think uh, Imperial Metals um, uh, had an interest, had an economic interest. Uh, they had uh, some money that was uh, had been spent in the area, and I think they wanted to ensure that uh, they would come out whole. They wouldn't have spent money and not get something back. So um, Washington State uh, put up a significant amount of money. Uh, the British Columbia government uh, put up $7 million. Uh, environmental organizations like the Nature Conservancy came forward with money and so did the Environmental Endowment Commission. And uh, between uh, those four and uh, some hard negotiation over the last, um, particularly over the last three years, uh, an agreement was made and Imperial Metals uh, saw the wisdom of uh, of um, moving away from any intent to actually pursue activity in the area. And uh, it's just a great day for uh, British Columbia, uh, people on both sides of the border are celebrating, and I know uh, I know Indigenous nations. Uh, this has great meaning for them as well, and we look forward to uh, working with them through BC Parks to ensure that um, that we uh, we develop future plans together. Yeah. So, how do you envision this being accessed? Then, what will it look like for people? Well, I, uh, it, you know, it, it is in the middle of the park. That's why it's called the Donut Hole. Uh, there are um, it's remote uh, but i think uh, the key here is uh, unlike uh, in 1941 when we established manning park and we did not talk to indigenous peoples whose traditional territory uh, we were in we just simply established a park and set the rules uh, we now have uh, the rights of indigenous people act in british columbia we are working on reconciliation i think indigenous people have a lot to say about what future use should be uh, and I'm sure that uh, they will want to both protect ecological values, ensure that <clears throat> cultural uh, significance and history is protected. But I am I'm sure they uh, also will um, see um, some healthy outdoor backcountry recreational opportunities uh, that are respectful of the environment for everyone. And I'm not going to prejudge the consultation. We uh, we will be reaching out and um, and I look forward to those discussions. You talked about Manning Park there, though. I mean, that is a hugely popular park here in British Columbia. Do we, do we need to do more to that? I mean, how, what is access like right now for Manning Park? It must be incredibly busy. Oh, it, it, it's a very, very busy uh, park, and we uh, we added over a hundred campsites, I believe, in the last year to Manning Park to accommodate the interest. Uh, you know, whether it's summer or whether it's um, cross-country skiing in winter, uh, people from all over BC, but particularly Metro Vancouver and uh, and that region, uh, access that area. And um, you, you know, people during the pandemic have, in a sense, rediscovered the importance of uh, of the outdoors, both for health and for having a sense of calm. And um, and we're uh, we're trying to take up the challenge in BC parks to enhance recreational opportunities to. Uh, invest in our infrastructure and parks. We had the largest infusion of uh, operating and capital money in BC parks uh, announced in last year's budget that we've seen in uh, in a couple of decades. And uh, we're working hard to ensure that we're uh, keeping up with British Columbians' demand. 
it's a challenge, but uh, it's important. Yeah, I was going to say, do you feel like there, there's more coming on that front? It just The more you provide, the more people want to get into the outdoors. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's a good thing. And uh, I think as uh, people want their government to um, to protect what's unique and beautiful about British Columbia so we can all enjoy it. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Take care. You too. That's George Heyman, BC's Minister of the Environment and Climate Change Strategy, talking about the deal that took a long time to finish off a little part of Manning Park that has been, well, they've been waiting decades to make that happen, as you heard there. Supply, supply, supply. That's what we hear will help us with housing affordability. I mean, it's very true that it takes a long time and there are a lot of hoops to get something built in Metro Vancouver. But will just saying yes help the situation? Well, not necessarily, says our next guest. Let's find out why he thinks that. Patrick Condon joins us now, UBC professor at the School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. So tell me, you think that land prices might be the key to this. Why is that? Uh, Land prices are really the problem if you look at the assessor's bills on anybody's property, mostly detached properties. You'll find out in the city of Vancouver, for example, that nine-tenths of the value of your home is the land under it. And uh, the response to that has been to say, well, let's just add density to that piece of land. And that'll cheapen the percentage of the price of the new home that is uh, a a factor of that land value. Unfortunately, when the city uh, has uh, increased allowable density, the thing that happens first is the price of the land goes right up very quickly. Land speculators move in and uh, are able to capitalize on that new land value so that when the, the new denser building goes in, uh, the purchaser or the renter doesn't see any advantage, only the land speculator does. Right. So essentially we're making, with all the things that we're trying to do to make things better, we're actually making the land more and more valuable. Uh, yeah. Land gets more and more valuable and the benefit goes to the land speculator who smart enough to realize that and they get the capital gains. So then how do we fix that? How do you address land prices? Well, we already do that. My recommendation is that we do more of that. Uh, For example, in the city of Vancouver, they use a couple of development tax strategies. Uh, One's called the community amenity contribution, and the other one is called the development cost levy that uh, are assigned at the beginning of the project so that the land purchaser knows that as part of the project, they will be required to uh, pay a certain amount per square foot of new, uh, newly authorized density uh, at the end of the project. That has the effect of reducing what's called the residual value of the land. Now, in my view, we don't do enough of it, uh, and the money we gain is not used primarily to make housing more affordable. M- make housing more affordable. It could be streamed towards more affordable housing. Right. So we need to use more levers, you're saying, but already we get complaints from, you know, developers and builders who say it already costs too much to build something. So how do we how do we balance that? Yeah, well, that's that's the controversy. The builders and the, and the contractors will many of them, not uh, not all of them, many of them will say, well, if you add those development taxes, all that happens is the cost of the house goes up. Exactly. But the but the evidence does not support that. What uh, and that's because. The value of our housing in our region is 
is capped at a certain rate based on what the market currently will pay. It will currently pay a lot right now. And whether you uh, have a tax or not, the the home sells for the same amount. So it doesn't raise, if you add those taxes, it doesn't raise the price of the home. What it does is reduce the purchase price of the land under the home. So if you took those tax tax uh, receipts and stream them towards a nonprofit housing or affordable housing, it would not inc- it would not increase in my view certainly, and the evidence supports me. Uh, it would not rise the price of, of the home. What do you think of all this discussion? And we spoke to David Eby, the housing minister, about this last week about leaning on municipalities to create more supply. Yeah, well, that's the debate here, and that's, I'm on the other side of that debate. I'm saying supply is good for a variety of reasons, but supply is not proving to reduce costs. And if that was an effective strategy, no place in North America would have seen that work as well as in Vancouver. We've, we've added supply for 30, 40 years. Just look at our downtown, and prices have gone up 300% in that same time. So the empirical evidence does not support the idea that simply adding supply will make prices go down. But has any place, any jurisdiction done what you're suggesting and tried to actually control the land price, and and did it work? Yeah, uh, well, the best example globally is Vienna, who has done that for hmm, almost 100 years now, and they have 50% of their home. Their housing is uh, non-market affordable housing. Uh, Vancouverites are not really aware that we have 15%, so that's not bad, but we stopped building it in the 1980s. We should not have stopped building non-market housing, and we'd be doing a lot better. Closer to home, uh, the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, has adopted a zoning strategy. It's called their Affordable Housing Overlay Strategy, where they have basically put in a new zoning avenue for development for the whole city that says we will allow you to double your density on this parcel but only in return for all of the units being 100 percent affordable and this was done in concert with their nonprofit housing providers who explained to them and they worked together on the idea that if they did that the land prices would not elevate because they could not elevate, because the requirement for affordable housing meant that the, the project pro forma had to be done in such a way that they could only afford a certain amount for the land, not an elevated price for the land. But, but are, since, you, are you also talking about more supply? Like all of that adds up to, it's different types of supply, but it still is more supply. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it is more supply, but the new supply is affordable. Right, and you feel that by doing that, it would impact land prices? Like, would it would make prices, what, go down? It would stabilize. I don't think it's likely that we're going to do anything under these circumstances to uh, to uh, make prices go, land prices go down, but I think it's possible to stabilize them at, the, at least. Only if we are saying that you can get new density and new supply, but you have to do that. To do that, you have to 
be willing to return some percentage of affordable housing. We already do that in many projects in Vancouver at the 10 to 20% affordability ratio. My my suggestion would be to boost that up to at least 50%. Wouldn't part of the problem here, Patrick, also be that you have to convince homeowners to do this, right? Like developers, builders, that's one thing. But if you're talking about impacting the individual homeowner, well, they don't really like it if you talk about lowering land prices. Well, we're not really talking. That's that's true. Everybody, maybe everybody wants a big payday, but uh, under what I'm talking about here, uh, land prices wouldn't go down, and the land prices are already ridiculously high. So, uh, if we could somehow stabilize one of the prices, I, I don't think uh, people would have very much to complain about. The urgency here is to create a avenue for affordable housing, and in the absence of uh, controlling the increase in land prices, right. I think I think we will not have a success in that just by adding new supply in the way David Aby seems to want to do. All right, interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Sure. Have a great day. You too. That's Patrick Condon, UBC professor at the School of Architecture, saying that supply, 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 and providing more of it isn't necessarily the answer uh, to all of our affordability issues. Interesting idea. Uh, Also, want to mention what's going on in Ontario right now. They are actually just announcing the relaxation of a lot of restrictions. They're going to start reopening restaurants to in-person dining, like some of these things we already have here, right, and that we did not close. But yeah, they are making that official announcement this morning and they're increasing capacity limits and, and lifting all sorts of things there. So that's going to be an interesting one to watch, even as there are still a lot of concerns of what's going on with the Omicron variant. Could BC be looking at something like that?